hope you'll enjoy this episode of Women Worth Knowing. Make sure you rate us on your podcast app, subscribe, and share it with a friend. This is Cheryl Broderson. And Jasmine Allnut. And we're here with another woman worth knowing. I mean, there are so many, but we're in our medical series. So we're highlighting doctors and nurses yes. who just astound me. Anyway, we have a, a couple living nurses that we hope to get in the studio. Yeah, that's right. Uh, to talk to you because these women are worth knowing also. And yes. we believe that you probably have a woman worth knowing in your life. And maybe she's a doctor, maybe she's a nurse that you want us to highlight. We would love to introduce other people to her, or maybe you're in the medical field, and we'd like to talk to you. So yeah, if you would definitely. write us at— Yeah, you can email us, wwk at cccm.com, and uh, let us know about that. Oh, we can please. remember remind you of that at the end of the please, episode. Please, please, please write to us. Yes. But Jasmine, you have somebody very special today that I've never heard about before. Yes, and I had read about her a long time ago, and then my mom— if you uh, folks remember my mom being on here before, she's just the guru on she's missionary amazing. biographies. Mm-hmm. And she reminded me of this gal and she said, Jess, why don't you talk about Edith Moles? And I was like, oh yeah, I remember her. So uh, that's who we're going to be looking at today, Edith Moles. So she was born Edith Patton, that was her maiden name, mm. in July of 1900 in Yorkshire, England. Uh-huh. So we got a British gal. Yeah, we've talked about, I think, a lot of Americans. So yes. let's, let's cover the Brits here a little bit. <laughs> Give well, them a shout out. Elizabeth Blackwell was actually British. Oh, you're right. But got her degree in America. Yeah. But she went back to Britain, so. Okay, well, that's true. Okay, so we have a little bit of both there. That's one. <laughs> yeah, one. one. We got to come back to get more. Yes. And we'll be doing Helen Rosevear mm-hmm. and others, so. Uh, her father was a blacksmith, and um, unfortunately, her mom died when she was only four years old, mm. so she didn't really remember her mom mm-hmm. or anything. But what's really interesting is her dad remarried, and I'm not sure why. Um, this wasn't in the story that I read, the account that I read, but um, when he remarried, um, they decided to send Edith to go and live with her grandmother. Uh, I don't know if they just they want to start a new family together. Maybe he couldn't afford, um, you know, to raise everybody together. Um, it's not really clear what happened there. But she gets sent to live with her grandma. And fortunately, she loved her grandmother. And she loved living with her. So it actually worked out okay in the end. Thank God. So Edith was very conscientious. Um, she had very strong character. And so when she was only a teenager— um, she realized, like, man, I, sh- I should start kind of pulling my weight around here. Uh, I don't want to be a burden to my grandmother. And so even just at, from the time she was a young girl, she uh, started working in the home of the local congregationist, congregationalist minister, like that's, as a maid or a housekeeper. That's amazing. I know. I was like, how sweet. Like, how many teenagers today are that considerate? Well, I'm going to go and, you know, just try to pull my weight around here. <laughs> You'll meet so, one every once in a while. Yes, they and, are out there. And they're those worth gems. knowing. Yeah, those are, yeah. <laughs> Kids worth knowing. Teenagers yeah. worth knowing. Uh, That's right. Other program. Very. Yeah. 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 Totally. So no very remarkable. <laughs> so she um, went to church regularly, probably at that Congregationalist church. But she hadn't given her life to Jesus yet. She was just a churchy girl. But when she was twelve, she heard the hymn uh, "There Is a Fountain Filled with Blood," which is quite a graphic hymn. You know, there's some beautiful lyrics in that, but also some whoa graphic ones. And that really touched her heart, like the blood drawn from Emmanuel's veins and, you know, just the sacrifice of Jesus on the cross. And so she was just crying over the song and the pastor came up to her and um, thought that she was genuinely being saved at that moment. He said, oh, well, do you do believe that Jesus died for your sins? And she said, yes. 
So she believed that Jesus died for her sin, but she didn't know what to do with it. And for some reason, he just kind of assumed like, oh good, she gets it. She's convicted of her sin and, and she's saved now. So he just kind of treated her as if it was already a done deal. He didn't stop to really walk her through the process. But she knew something was missing, even though it was like, oh wow, I had this touching moment, this emotional experience. Um, but again, she didn't understand repentance and salvation. So because of that, she kind of viewed the whole thing as well. Jesus died for me, so I should probably try to be a really good girl for him and, and really try to just be, you know, do good works, which is, you know, something many, we all fall yes, into, isn't it? How many others have felt that way, Exactly. Right? I have to earn it and prove, mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. okay, I'm worthy of what mm -hmm. you've done. Right. So that's what she did for a while. And so um, it was funny because, you know, she felt like, well, I, I probably should be reading the Bible. And But it's funny because she thought the Bible was so boring. Again, she's not born again, yes. so it doesn't it yes. doesn't mean anything to her, yes. but she would read it anyway. And so sometimes she'd read the Bible before bed until she was getting super sleepy. And then she'd get into bed and suddenly she would think, oh, I probably should finish that one chapter because if I don't, she said, um, "In case I better finish it in case I die before morning. Oh my goodness. She thought, if I die, I'm gonna go to hell because I didn't finish that chapter. So oh my goodness. just this burden. That's and this, so sad. Yes, what a weight to live yes. under. But she's just constantly in that kind of condemnation mode, which we've seen, you know, like Cheryl was saying over and over again with people. And maybe you've experienced that as well, that before coming to Christ and realizing, oh, he's done it all for me. So, you know, she's walking in this kind of burdened condition. She gets a little bit older and she moves to the town of Ilkney and she got connected there with the Christian Alliance of Women and Girls. And so she starts making friends. Um, and, you know, again, she I think she kind of thought she was a Christian, even though it, just something was wrong there. So she starts making friends with all these gals um, and, and realized, wow, they— they have something different in their is connection it to Jesus. Lee or Elk Knee? I saw Elk Knee. Uh, okay. Maybe there is, is there an Elk Lee that you well, know Well, there's about? an Elk Lee with a really great Betty's of Harrogate oh. tea shop. So <laughs> I was like, shop. is it Elk Lee? Well, maybe. <laughs> <laughs> I've been there. Could be. Yes. So um, anyway, so these gals really um, knew the Lord. And she recognized that they had something that she didn't have. There was a dynamic missing. So one day she was talking to her friend Ethel and um, said, like, what? what is it about you? you? You seem kind of different than me in the way you talk about Jesus and the way you talk about the Bible. You're really excited about the Bible. And all Ethel said to her was, well, Edith, it's because Jesus doesn't live inside you. And I'm like, well, why didn't she say something sooner? But yes, <laughs> yes, yes. But maybe it was just that moment mm -hmm, when, mm -hmm. when Edith really was open. That's right. And yeah. so Ethel just said, well, Jesus doesn't live in you yet. It's, it's just simple. You need to receive him and receive his forgiveness for yourself. And for whatever reason, that was the moment that really connected the dots. And so Edith really genuinely gives her life to the Lord at this point. And uh, it's just, you know, again, a revolutionary moment. So she's con continuing to be involved in the uh, the alliance, I guess we could say, the Christian Alliance of Women and Girls. That's too much of a mouthful. <laughs> so at these alliance events, um, they had a lot of missionaries coming and speaking. And so she's hearing about missions all the time. And when she was 18, she really clearly felt like God was calling her uh, to be a missionary. And so she shared this with some of her friends. They got all excited and they all wanted to support her. Now, what year is this? Oh, well, so she's 18. So it's 1918. 1918. So yeah, wow. after, after World War I right, is right, over right, and right. everything. And so um, they, you know, they decide, oh, this is awesome, Edith. And you're called, we'll all pitch in and send you to missionary training school. So there was a training college in London. And so, you know, they all rally together and support her. And it's all exciting. Like, I'm going to go be a missionary. So she goes to this school. 
And it was a, it was a very, um, there was a lot of discipline in this training school. I mean, they really wanted to prepare you for anything. And Edith kind of went into it, I think, with a little bit of a, just a kind of a glamorous vision of how she was just going to float through training school and go off to the mission field and share the gospel and all of that. And she wasn't really mature enough at this point uh, to handle the discipline there. The hard work. They put them through a lot of just physical work. And, and, you know, these are some of the things you're going to be doing on the mission field. It's not all just sunshine and daisies. We want to prepare you fully. Um, and not only that, but she didn't do very well with uh, the authority there mm-hmm. or with the rules. There were a lot of rules. She didn't like Isn't it. That interesting because she was such a great teenager, yes. you know, helping others. And yeah. maybe that's why she thought you know, there's something that God always allows us to see the selfishness in us, doesn't he? Boy, and that's that's so true with Edith. As we're going to hear her story, she's really honest about her selfishness mm-hmm. and her pride. Oh, my goodness. She had a really strong will. Mm-hmm. And I think this is where that really started to come out. Like, okay, maybe in the early years it was like, oh, wow, she's a go-getter. But now she's starting to realize, ooh, I have a lot of pride here. And mm-hmm. she was very stubborn and strong-willed. So she actually decided on her own to just leave. I'm just bailing. I know. So she just left. And it was kind of sad because, you know, even though she was hard work, as they would say over in the UK, um, she was a little bit of a challenge. But the principal of the training college was really disappointed because he thought or she thought, you know, I can really, you know, if Edith could really just Mm -hmm. surrender Mm -hmm. to the Lord and, Mm -hmm. you know, learn um, humility, gosh, she would have such a, you know, such a a dynamic ministry. And so there was a lot of uh, potential there, but Edith wasn't ready. And so actually the principal said that she was hoping that Edith would persevere and go to all lengths with God, but she just wasn't ready yet. And so it's interesting, you know, sometimes we just think, oh yeah, you just go on to training school and then everything's fine. But, you know, there's a, a different process that God calls all of us to. And sometimes it's weaknesses and issues in our lives that he needs to work out. And so, Edith left and she did, um, you know, maybe she left a little bit in a huff, but she also felt like a failure. She was embarrassed because these friends had supported her. Oh, wow. And here she was, right? And here she is bailing out. But what I love is that she didn't just um, abandon ship completely. She didn't like walk away from the Lord or go just, you know, retreat and hide away. Um, She still wanted to serve. And so I I love that. She just started helping out locally where she was at, I think, once she kind of recovered from the whole experience. So she starts helping out in the YWCA and the Salvation Army. And during that time, she started to really um, develop a heart for evangelism and then practical service. And it was at this point that she felt like God was leading her to begin training to be a nurse. And so she went to nursing school, and this was where she really started to excel in her studies. And so it's really kind of neat because it was it was like, you know, she wasn't ready before, she wasn't mature enough before, but now just the Lord is so faithful. He doesn't just cast us aside or say, well, you blew that opportunity. Yeah, no cancel he, culture with yes, Jesus. Yes, there is no cancel culture with the Lord. And so he gave her another opportunity and he did it in, in his way and timing. And I love this. And this was apparently the school that God chose for her because she really matured a lot through this process. And this was when she really became a, a witness for Christ and started to learn to surrender to the Lord a little bit more um, and, and develop in kind of a— sanctify some of those rough edges a little bit. Because she was, in her strong-willed nature, she was a natural leader. That that was that was evident, and I, that's probably what that um, principal at the mission training school saw in her. Like, there's a lot of potential here. But now, it's being sanctified, and so she's able to start uh, leading, um, 
you know, in a, in a more productive way that honored the Lord. She actually began a Bible study in the hospital that she wow. was serving at. And so I, I just love that, how the Lord can use even those, those detours <laughs> for a reason. And he was, whether she realized it or not, he was training her for the mission field. That call was still there. That was a true call. But she just had a process to go through till she was ready for that. And so, you know, now she's, you know, trained as a nurse and everything. And, and she had kind of become, uh, kind of assumed for whatever reason that she was going to go to India as a missionary, as a, you know, medical nurse or something like that. You know, maybe because people like Ida Scudder that right, we've already right, right. talked about, yes. all those pioneers that went right. before, so many of them were in India. So mm-hmm. she probably just thought, I want to carry on that legacy uh, where those women went. But God really surprised her with a curveball and began putting Africa on her heart. Wow. More and more. And so uh, one day she came across a magazine that was published by the World Evangelization Crusade, which might sound familiar if you remember way back when we talked about uh, Priscilla and C.T. Studd. That was uh, the missions organization that they established. That was C.T. Studd's ministry. And so she reads this uh, magazine and it just grabbed her heart. She's like, oh my goodness, this is where I want to go. And I love their vision. I want to go with these people. And so she applied to the World Evangelization Crusade, and they accepted her for service. So she leaves for Africa in 1927, and she's just ready to win the continent for Christ. She's like, I'm going. And, you know, this is still still Edith. She's just still kind of got that, not pie in the sky completely, but just she's just so confident that, you know, I'm going to just take, take over for Christ and all this stuff. But it's interesting because on the voyage, um, a man approached her, found you know, found out what she was going to be doing, that she wanted to go be a, a medical missionary to Africa. And he said, oh, man, Edith, there is such a need for lepers in Africa. And she's like, oh, that's nice. But she kind of just blew it off. And yet it's interesting, as we're going to see, maybe this is a spoiler here, but this was a seed being planted in her heart for later. Um, she just didn't recognize it till later that, you know, God's starting to put these little things mm-hmm. out, like, mm-hmm. you know, leprosy, mm-hmm. big needs mm-hmm. here. Mm-hmm. So... Um, But again, she ignored it, like, oh, okay, that's cool, good to know. So she gets to Africa, and the first few months there, it's kind of neat. C.T. Studd, you know, he um, passed away just a couple years after this, but he was still alive, still there, trying to go strong. (laughs) Crazy guy that he was. And he was in the town of Ibambi, and she um, ended up being assigned in the first couple months to just kind of train with him there. And got to know him. And it's interesting, like so many, and it's easy to do this with C.T. Studd. She was really critical of him at first. He was very eccentric, radical, did a lot of controversial things, as we've talked about. very strong. So strong. strong. Yes. Um, But it's interesting because she really came to respect and admire the fact that he was totally surrendered to Jesus. Mm -hmm. That was one thing about C.T. Studd, regardless of the way he did things and, you know, how controversial he was. It really was out of a heart of surrender, and nobody could really question that, his dedication. I mean, this guy was a living sacrifice, if ever there was one, to be honest. And so that really challenged her. And so this was um, kind of her moment of of total consecration to the Lord. We're going to see that, you know, there was more to that process later. But this was where she really felt called to surrender to the Lord um, uh, at this time. And so just kind of, again, following in— his footsteps in a way and that inspiration. So um, then she was assigned to a station that uh, stud had begun in Nala, which is in the Belgian Congo or modern day Zaire. And there had been a medical work there before, but the doctor left. And so the whole thing just fell apart. If there wasn't a doctor, if there wasn't a nurse, you know, there, there was just nothing that anyone could do. So the whole thing had been abandoned. 
And so she decided, you know, okay, well, let's let's restart it here. Let's get going. And so she found an old um, mud building, like a tool shed, and converted that into a medical dispensary. Wow. And then, <laughs> I know, I'm like, wow, that's very makeshift. Yes. And then they added two more mud buildings to kind of serve as, quote, hospitals, one for men and one for women. And, you know, you better believe after not having any medical service for so long, as soon as the people found out there was a nurse in the area, they're like, oh my goodness. And so tons of people start coming. Some days there were over 200 uh, people coming per day. And so, you know, very similar to what we saw in India with uh, Ida Scudder and some of these other gals that, you know, there was just such a need that hundreds of people would show up at a time. One quarterly report, so a quarter would have been, what, three months, I think, of a year, it said there were 13,836 people with 25 different diseases oh that came. Goodness. I know. And she's oh the only one my there. Oh, goodness. You know, you, you know she's kind of probably trying to train some of the 13, people there. but thousand. Yes, insane. And so, like I said, with some of these other gals that we've seen, there were so many needs. Um, Edith always put spiritual needs above the physical needs, and she led so many people to Christ during this time. And uh, it really was thriving. And so initially she's thinking like, woo, this is just as I expected. The Lord's moving, the power of the spirit, and I'm you know, healing and leading people to Christ. And so everything's booming. And then one day, dun, 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 <laughs> she sees a, a leper um, standing outside uh, watching her as she's mm. doing her, you know, she's mm -hmm. doing all of her stuff. All these people mm -hmm. are coming in, but she can see out of the corner of her eye, this leper standing there. And he was in advanced stages of leprosy. Um, his fingers and toes were oh all rotted. Goodness. His yes. body was swollen and disfigured. And um, she asked about him and, you know, somebody there told her, oh yeah, that guy, um, he came from 80 miles away through the forest with this little boy. There was a little boy with him who had oh led the, the man there. And this was oh an, old, an older yeah. man. But just thinking, I mean, 80 miles is a long, you know, that's a long distance if you're nor like healthy and feeling good, let alone if you have leprosy and, you know, you don't really have all your appendages. I mean, this was crazy. And so she just felt, you know, really, I mean, she felt terrible for him. But the problem was, Edith was willing to treat any disease but leprosy. There was something about leprosy that was just like, uh-uh. For one thing, she was terrified of contracting it, which is right. a very normal human reaction. Right, right. And, and that's good to re remember. I think sometimes we just think all these people, these medical people were so impervious, like, oh, we don't care. Yeah. We're just well, going to go in. Remember how we read about um, uh, Louise, uh, I think uh, Louise mm. Cecilia, and she contracted uh, the sleeping disease in Africa. Yes. She was in the same place. You yes. Know? So, yeah. you this know, this was a legit fear. Yes. Very Absolutely. legit. Absolutely. Yes. And so, uh, and, and you know, honestly, she also was afraid if word gets out that I'm helping people with leprosy, I'm going to get a ton more lepers here. Oh, right. I know. And I mean, really, that was her, these are her selfish thoughts. And yes. I love this about her. She's so honest with her weaknesses. Yes. Like when she wrote about it later, she's like, look, I was just a sinner. <laughs> and I was, I just didn't have faith. Um, I also, she also didn't believe that God would give her um, the resources and provide for her to deal with this because she mm -hmm. said, leprosy is such a gnarly deal. I can't deal with that and with all of these other issues coming up. So she just felt like there were too many walls and too many impediments. Mm -hmm. And so she enters into this major moral dilemma. And, you know, she really had consecrated herself to the Lord when she was with C.T. Stead, but I love this. Her biographer said, she had to learn that it is not just making a decision of surrender during an immediate moment of conviction that matters in the long run. Rather, a daily discipline of obedience in the affairs of life constitutes true consecration. 
And I love that. She realized, wow, this is a daily thing. This isn't something like, oh, I just committed myself to the Lord. I surrendered once and I'm good. But it's like, no, there's the constant need to, what, present our bodies a living sacrifice to the Lord. It's a continual process. And she hadn't arrived yet. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and so she's starting to realize that, that she needed to surrender um, that to the Lord. But she did, so she said, okay, fine, I'll find a place for the boy and the leper to stay. So she found a building for them, kind of put them off somewhere. Um, but she didn't, she still didn't want to treat them. And so, you know, she's dealing with, like I said, there's this moral dilemma that she enters into at this point. And she thought, well, if I just kind of give them somewhere to stay, maybe tomorrow they'll like go away and they'll just get discouraged because they'll realize I have so many other people to see that I don't have time for them. But then the next day, the minute she got to the clinic, you know, or the dispensary and started helping people, there they were standing outside first thing in the morning. And so that day she lost all her joy. I mean, everything was just a burden because she just kept thinking about that man and that little boy standing outside watching her, watching her. And so her biographer said she knew that when one faced a moral issue in which he or she was not willing to be obedient to Christ, that the joy would soon fade and the wellspring of happiness would dry up. In the final analysis, as, as Edith realized, whether one will do the perfect will of God becomes life's ultimate test. And I love that. It's like, man, this was the moment of true obedience for her, and she was struggling with it. She was just, you know, we see this with a lot of missionaries. If you ever read the story of Hudson Taylor, he had one of those kind of crisis of faith moments as well, where it's like, man, there's just a wait until we enter into obedience to what the Lord is calling us to do. So she decided, I love it, because she's still not giving in. And she decides to just pray for them and tell them, uh, uh, tell the Lord how bad she felt for them. Well, I'll just pray and the Lord understands. Lord, you know these people, they're struggling and, you know, just just bless them, help them, you know, lead them away, you know, to understand the situation here. (laughs) But, and I love this, this is why I keep losing these quotes because I think these are such good little, you know, life lessons and nuggets here. As God's spirit kept pressing her heart, she began to realize that God did not want her prayer. He wanted her obedience. One can use a time of prayer as an opiate to dull the will of God, as paradoxical as that may seem. And I think that's actually very insightful. There's some times where we pray about things that we already know the answer to. That's really That really spoke to me. I'm like, wow, how many things am I praying about that the Lord's already said, here's what I want you to walk in. It reminds me a little bit about when Jesus is you know, seeing the multitude and he says, I want to feed them. And disciples say, send them away. Jesus says, you feed them. You feed them, exactly. You feed them. Exactly. And that's what he was challenging her to do. Like, Edith, I brought these people here. Mm -hmm. This is for you. This isn't like to just blow off. Right. So after four days, this is what a, you know, strong-willed person Edith was. After four days, she finally surrendered to the Lord and said, okay, I'll help this man. All the joy returns in her ministry. Whoa. And it was just That's a real this sign, beautiful, isn't it? yes, totally. Mm-hmm. And so, wouldn't you know it, from this point forward, between uh, 1929 and 1931, um, the Lord just blessed. And the things that she had used as excuses and concerns, the Lord just dealt with all of those obstacles. Um, a, a hospital compound with leper care was developed, and she found that the Lord gave her the ability to meet the needs, you know, and to raise up other people to help. It wasn't too much for the Lord. And so they actually started a settlement for the lepers that were coming. A lot of them started to get saved. Uh, there were new advancements in medicine at this point. And so some of them were beginning to get actually physically healed, which 
had never happened before. Mm-hmm. So she's realizing, all right, Lord, you were in this. So, I wonder how many of those um, medical developments are from Paul Brand working mm, in right. India at yeah. the time. Oh, yeah. Because he was the one who was really on the cutting edge of that. Right. Yeah, some of these, yeah, exactly, contemporaries that mm-hmm. helped each other. I love that. So in 1932, Edith got engaged to a fellow missionary named wow. Percy Moles. And it's cute. They really, um, they were kind of opposites, but they complemented each other well because as you might be able to see, she was, uh, Edith could be very ambitious and quick and hasty and impatient, but he was this very gentle, steady, patient man. He was just a peach. Mm -hmm. And so (laughs) they had a really sweet uh, relationship. So she actually went away on furlough. And when she came back in 1934, November of 1934, they were married. So she's, Mm -hmm. yeah, 34 years old at this point. And uh, while she was away on furlough, this, like I said, this happened all the time. If the doctor or nurse left, a lot of times the the work would kind of fall apart. And Mm -hmm. so even just during that furlough, um, the work in Nala kind of, you know, collapsed. Uh, But it's neat because at this point, the Belgian government recognized what a service that she was performing. And so they stepped in to help Edith and Percy in their ministry. And then, again, these are the Lord confirming to her, like, hey, Mm -hmm. I'm in this. And then uh, World War II breaks out, and uh, there was a Red Cross doctor who had to go back home to Europe, and he had a 350-person leper colony that he had been developing. And so he gave the whole thing over to Percy and Edith. So they actually had a a really functional— facility now, a place to care for these people. And God continued to expand the work exponentially. And so by 1943, um, she reported that there were actually 51 symptom-free lepers. And that might not sound like a lot, but Edith and Percy um, began to realize as they're going along here, and this was, I think, a tendency for Edith, uh, they were um, continuing to serve and serve and serve, but it was starting to become a work. Mm. Uh, They were not you know, getting that fresh feeling of the spirit. And Percy actually got convicted about this first, but eventually Edith realized that the Lord was wanting to work things out of her life by his spirit. And I love this with her, just again, the the transparency, because she realized, man, I'm teaching and disciplining others, but I'm not accepting the correction and discipline of the spirit in my own life. And she was always acting like, oh, this is for other people. I'm here to minister to you. And, And again, pride. It was just something with her that she was always having to work through. In fact, at one point, she felt like the Lord was showing her like, man, I would love to entrust you with more. But he said to her, you know, Edith, I can't put a great lot of weight on you because when I do, you whine a lot. (laughs) And so just these transforming words that the Lord was speaking to her and breaking her of, she also had to accept the fact that she wasn't an important person who could act patronizingly towards the people she was serving. She She kind of would put walls up between her and the people. And she realized, she was starting to realize that, as she said, the cross life was supplanting my self life. And so learning to die to self that the Lord would have his full way in her. And so um, in 1944, as she's going through this whole process, and again, learning her weaknesses and the Lord exposing these things, Percy and Edith took a little break on Lake Kivu near Nebobongo. There's Nebobongo. There it is. This is where they went. And on that journey, Percy came down with typhoid. No. I know. And they found a doctor, which was miraculous, and and he did everything possible. So you think, yeah, he's going to recover. But Uh sadly, the Lord called Percy home. Mm. And so it's really interesting, though. This was was a real critical moment for her. The day Percy died, an African believer came and was sharing a story with her to try to encourage her to trust the Lord with her sorrows. And she started thinking to herself, again, this was her human nature. Mm -hmm. This African doesn't know what I'm going through. He doesn't understand that I'm a missionary and understand that I love the Lord. 
But the Lord busted her immediately for her pride. And this was the moment when all that superiority was just flushed away. When her husband died, she realized, who do I think I am? He's right. I'm not trusting the Lord. And so at this point, she really entered into full fellowship with the people she was ministering to. And that just broke all the walls down and a revival broke out in her ministry. The leper work expanded on the Gold Coast, beyond, thousands were treated, a lot of people uh, got saved and they even started a Bible school to train lepers in evangelism to go out into their communities. It was just beautiful what the Lord did when she was finally surrendered. And so in 1946, she was home on furlough. Uh, she had a benign cyst removed, Ooh. but a bigger one grew in its place. And she's a nurse, so she knows what this means. And uh, that, you know, she was entering into something terminal. And yet, um, you know, the doctors told her, hey, you have cancer. Uh, and if you don't stop being so active, you're only going to live for three months. But of course, she's not going to stop, right? She goes right back uh, to Africa and uh, just serves and serves, eventually comes back to England in 1948. And uh, it's kind of cool because she ended up living 14 months instead of the three months, wow. giving her all. And the Lord just, yes. yeah, the Lord gave her an extended period of grace there. Uh, but then she finally passed away uh, September of 1945. And C.T. Studd's uh, son-in-law, Norman Grubb, and his wife, uh, they were with her to the end. And he actually wrote her biography um, but I love this quote from her, and I think this is something you really see captured in her life. It is our inner attitude to life which makes or mars us. The glory of the cross shines out when we understand the principle of going the way of the cross. And that was what the Lord showed her. And I love that. She wasn't a perfect missionary, you know? She learned through her life well, you know, the importance no of surrender. Well, you know, no one really is. Exactly. It's just so the biographer is a little bit— Exactly. So that's why I love this. Yes. It's like Isabel Kuhn, the transparency of like, you yes. know, I just came as I was, and the Lord— Lord moved and worked And in that me. gives us hope for us all. You know what? Yeah. We're out of time. I know. That's okay. We finished. Yes. And Just, we started with the introduction. I mean, the end. So. Yeah, we did. <laughs> again, this is Cheryl and Jasmine saying. Farewell. Join us again for another Women Worth Knowing. That's right. <laughs> Good job. Thank you for listening to Women Worth Knowing with Cheryl Broderson and Jasmine Allnett. For more information on Cheryl, visit CherylBroderson.com or follow her on Instagram or Facebook. You can also follow Jasmine on Twitter, Instagram, or Facebook. If you think there is a woman worth knowing, we'd love to hear from you. Email us at wwk at cccm.com. We hope you've enjoyed today's episode. Make sure you've subscribed and don't forget to rate us on your podcast app and share it with friends. Thank you again for listening to Women Worth Knowing with Cheryl Broderson and Jasmine Allnutt.